Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale. And today we have a, a special treat. It, it's something I've been, a uh, tr- uh, special guest is on the show, someone I've been trying to get on to do a show with uh, with me or uh, on the show for a couple of years now, um, Dr. Class Cray. Welcome to the show, Class. Thanks so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. And thanks for pestering me until I was able to do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you're, uh, you're, you're definitely one of my, my favorite profs and that sort of thing. You're very knowledgeable. I call you the professional um, devil's advocate. You always know the opposite side to like counter <laughs> any argument. So yeah, it's well, awesome. And uh, joining me, I have two other uh, co-hosts kind of helping me out. Um, so everyone knows David Johnson from Skeptics and Seekers. How are you doing, David? Real well. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. You're welcome. And uh, someone who's new to Real Seekers actually is Andrew. Uh, the host of Still Unbelievable. We've been on many shows together, but this is your first time on Real Seekers. That's right. We've uh, tried to set up, uh, we've tried to set up shows together here at RSM uh, a time or two in the past, and it hasn't worked out, but I'm glad that it did today. And thank you for inviting me. Awesome. Yeah, you're always welcome anytime. So, all right. Awesome. So, so yeah, today's, today's plan is we have three topics scheduled. Um, so we're going to be doing sort of a religious disagreement, kind of a follow-up to the issue of peer disagreement, uh, also the hiddenness of God, um, and then the question of, is there such a thing as the best possible world? Uh, as everyone knows, I definitely think that there is, and I've, I've used it in several of my defenses against uh, some of the atheists and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, th- that's the plan for today. Um, but just before we get started, uh, I just want some, the guests to kind of quickly introduce themselves. So in your case, class, I'll give you some extra time since you're the main guest. Do you want to introduce us as to who you are and give us an idea as, as maybe a little bit about your faith journey, if you're willing to share? Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. So my name is Class Cray. I'm a professor of philosophy at Ryerson University in Toronto. Uh, my area of uh, specialization is uh, primarily philosophy of religion, so I'm professionally very interested in the topics that we're going to discuss and lots of other ones. Uh, personally, so I'm a, I'm a Christian. My denomination is Presbyterian. Um, I'll say just a little bit about that. Uh, so my, I was raised um, in a Presbyterian Christian uh, uh, home. My parents, as you can maybe guess from my name, uh, are Dutch, and uh, they, raised, they were raised in the Dutch Reformed uh, tradition of Protestantism. When they immigrated to Canada, they became Presbyterian, so that's the denominational tradition that I was uh, raised in. Um, but for me, faith is very much intertwined with my scholarly uh, work as well. So the, the way I can put it sometimes is that, is that I find faith to be a struggle intellectually a lot of the time. I, um, I uh, have days, moments, let's say, when the truth of theism in general and the truth of Christianity in particular uh, seems overwhelmingly uh, likely and luminous to me. Uh, and then I have lots of other days as well. So uh, particularly when I'm working on philosophical arguments for atheism, a couple of which we're gonna talk about today, I find them to be extremely powerful. And so I, I struggle to, to know exactly what I think uh, uh, intellectually. Um, and that certainly affects my faith life uh, as well. So I regard it as, uh, as kind of a life's work to, to try to think as clearly as I can about these arguments and to follow the arguments where they lead. And uh, yeah, that's a little bit about my story. I guess, I guess like all Christians, I'm very much a work in progress. 
Awesome. All right, cool. So, uh, so, so yeah, just turning to the other guests um, for class's benefit, do you want to maybe just take a couple minutes to give a brief introduction as to who you are and where you're coming from? Uh, starting with uh, David. Actually, I was just going to punt. Uh, can we uh, let Andrew go first? I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm dealing with a small technical issue. I'll be right there. Sure, no problem. Go ahead, Andrew. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so, I'm Andrew Knight. Dale mentioned that uh, I host Still Unbelievable. We have another podcast, uh, Persinium. You can find them over at, uh, uh, at reasonpress.net. My background, uh, I was uh, I double majored in, in college, uh, computer science and theology. Uh, I think I was the only guy on campus with that double major, which makes me the kind of oddball that you probably would think from, from that sort of double major. Um, I am uh, a programmer by trade. Uh, and, and so a, a lot of the things that I will talk about, the sort of approach that I take to uh, problem solving uh, will seem like the, the way that very technical computer people would go about problem solving. And that leads me to just this one observation. Uh, Klaus, you are Presbyterian. I'm from the Southeast United States. Uh, it's, it's, as I'm sure you know, Southern Baptist territory. Um, I grew up in that tradition um, and, and eventually uh, moved into the Church of Christ. So one of the things that I know that, that we'll have to be careful of is that we have different religious backgrounds. And so it's very possible that we'll, uh, that we'll use the same words, but we'll have, this sort of, uh, uh, we'll have this sort of compatibility problem. And so I just wanna say up front um, that if it sounds to you like when you use a word and I use the same word, that I'm not talking about what you're talking about. Um, you know, we should clear that up, right? Because there'll be a, you know, there, there's sort of a difference between uh, Presbyterians and, and Southern Baptists in the way they think about uh, things like reliability of scripture and that sort of thing. Um, so it'd just be useful to, to keep that in mind. And um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, that sounds great. And uh, professional philosophers are uh, highly adept at uh, clarifying uh, and distinguishing different versions of terms. So uh, not to worry on that score. Fair enough. I'm, uh, I'm not a professional at anything. So, <laughs> so I'm already at a disadvantage. <laughs> All right. Uh, all right. Cool. Uh, and David, do you, do you want to just take a couple quick minutes just to introduce yourself for class's benefit? Uh, sure. Uh, David Johnson, Skeptics and Seekers. Skeptics and Seekers. Squarespace. Com. Um, those. That's actually the most important thing <laughs> I have to say about me. Um, I. Um, I was a uh, Christian for most of my life, the vast uh, majority of my life, <clears throat> and for the majority of that time, I was in some leadership position of the church. Uh, I was a preacher at uh, some point. I have been a church leader of some description in three different denominations. And so my experience is um, pretty broad uh, and varied. Uh, when uh, I lost my faith, um, I didn't put down uh, the um, the inclination to think about 
things seriously. And I continue uh, my journey of learning more about the universe and my place in it in the way that I continue uh, is through conversations uh, with uh, Christians and skeptics. And uh, my contribution is to attempt to create uh, better conversations between the two and uh, have some hope that uh, we, that our philosophies and worldviews and religions and non-religions will ultimately fade away um, so that our greater humanity, our equal and unified humanity will take center stage. And I think that when that happens, uh, we will go a long ways toward creating uh, a utopia that all of us can live in. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you both. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, with that said, uh, let's get straight into today's topic. So the, the first one is definitely uh, one that class is familiar with. This is uh, part of the, f the first half of our philosophy of religion course was devoted to the topic of religious disagreement. Um, so, so yeah, I just want to sort of straight, straight over do this uh, interview style with you and turn it over to you, Klaus. Do you mind kind of talking, what is this issue of religious disagreement and how does that fit into the wider issue of peer disagreement in general? Yeah, great. Thanks so much. Um, what I'll do, and, and tell me if I'm going too long or too short, but what I thought I might do is just talk for five minutes, ten minutes max, uh, set the stage with some different isms and, uh, and connect it to the other debate that you mentioned, and then uh, you guys can uh, fire away with questions or comments. Does that sound okay? Sounds perfect. Okay, so I uh, think I've turned off my video, and I think I'm now sharing my slides, and I want to make this a little bit bigger. So can you see this, some philosophical responses? Yep. Okay, so um, let me just start, before I get into this slide, let me just start quickly by setting the stage. So the debate that Dale was referring to about peer disagreement is a debate in an area of philosophy called epistemology. Um, and it has to do with this question, right? Suppose, let me just set it up with a scenario. Suppose that you um, have some view, right, about some issue. And you come to learn that somebody who seems reasonably as informed as you and as smart as you and as judicious as you, you learn that such a person disagrees with you. And the philosophical question is, well, what should you do then? Are you entitled to stick to your guns, to believe what you believed before encountering this philosophical peer? Um, or should you do something about it? Do you, are you rationally required, for example, to lower your confidence or maybe to give up the belief altogether and suspend judgment about it, right? So there's, uh, there's been for the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years in epistemology, a, a big debate about that question. Uh, people who think that it's okay to stick to your guns in the face of this kind of disagreement are called steadfasters. So that's steadfastness is the view and people who defend it are called steadfasters. And those on the other side of this debate who think that you are rationally required to, uh, I don't know, um, uh, lower your confidence or maybe give up the belief altogether in the face of this disagreement, those folks are called conciliationists and the position is called conciliationism. So it's a debate between steadfastness and conciliationism. Now, Dale um, knows this, of course, but just to review that this debate really grew out of an earlier debate in philosophy of religion circles that really got going in the 1980s and 1990s in the 
analytic tradition and philosophy. And so that's the debate I'm gonna sort of set up uh, now. Um, now, the first thing to say before I get into some of these isms is that I wanna be clear that I'm not talking about so-called, here's a big fancy term already, so-called soteriological variants of these positions. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, soteriology is the study of ultimate destiny or who is saved, these kinds of questions, right? Salvation. Um, and so one question that, that naturally occurs to uh, Christians and lots of other people as well is, look, if, if one religion is true, uh, are people who don't belong to that religion saved? What is their ultimate destiny? Do they, for instance, go to hell if they don't believe exactly what Christians do or what some Christians do or whatever? Okay, those are important and interesting questions, but I'm not going to talk about them. I'm going to concentrate rather on epistemic variance. So that has to do with what's the reasonable position to believe. Epistemology is the study of knowledge and justification and belief. And so the question that I, the, the through line through these positions that I'm going to set up is, what is a reasonable position to take in the face of massive religious disagreement? Okay, so massive religious disagreement. Let's say, uh, I think everyone can agree, right? There's a huge amount of religious disagreement, right? There are many different so-called great religions of the world. Uh, they disagree with each other on lots and lots of matters. And then within many religious traditions, there are enormous disagreements as well, right? And you uh, adverted to some of those uh, in, your, uh, in your introduction, Andrew, right? So, you know, Catholics in Christianity, Catholics and Protestants and um, uh, Orthodox Christians disagree on lots of matters within Judaism, uh, Orthodox conservative and reform Jews disagree with each other on lots of things. Shia and Sunni Muslims disagree with each other. Okay, I don't need to elaborate examples. I take it you all know that there's an awful lot of religious disagreement in the world. So the question is, the philosophical question is this, the epistemic question is, well, what's the reasonable position to take in the face of this religious disagreement? Okay, so that brings me to my first of a handful of uh, isms. So exclusivism, and again, this is not exclusivism about salvation, exclusivism in an epistemological key, as I would say, is really a version of steadfastness. So exclusivism is a view that says it's okay, or at least it can be okay in certain conditions to stick to your guns, right? So suppose you belong to religion C, right? And you know that there are lots of well-meaning and smart and informed people who disagree with you. There are agnostics and there are atheists and there are people who belong to different religions and so forth. There's all kinds of people who disagree with you. Exclusivism is the view that it's okay to stick to your guns, or maybe more precisely that it can be okay to stick to your guns, that you're not rationally obliged to give up your view or modify your view or be less confident in your view simply because people disagree with you. So you can see the connection to the peer disagreement debate. This is really a version of the steadfast view um, applied here to religious, religious disagreement in particular. So that's our first ism. And like all these other isms, it's a super duper controversial view. People have called exclusivism all kinds of terrible names. They've said that it's immoral, that it's egotistical, that it's imperialistic, that it's oppressive, and so on and so forth. And we can talk about some of those objections later on. I'm just going to quickly set the stage. So that's exclusivism. It's okay to stick to your guns about religious belief, even though lots of people disagree with you. That's, let's say that's exclusivism. Okay. Inclusivism. Again, this is not inclusivism about salvation, although that is a version of inclusivism, but that's not what I'm going to be focusing on. Inclusivism is a little bit different from exclusivism, as the name suggests. 
And it's really more a model of how to understand religious diversity or religious disagreement. Okay, so that's pretty vague. Let me try to tighten it up. According to the religious inclusivist, her or his own religion is the correct one. But the ones that are rivals to it are not sort of totally false. They're not completely misguided. They're not uh, completely unworthy of any uh, credit, right? Indeed, they might have a lot going for them. Okay, so the, the big name, uh, the big theologian associated with this view is Karl Rahner, Catholic theologian, uh, important in the developments theologically leading up to the Second Vatican Council in the Roman Catholic Church. And Rahner was concerned um, certainly with uh, the idea that um, uh, is Roman Catholicism the one true religion? Well, I think he thought that it was, but he also thought that it would be a terrible mistake and one that really wouldn't fit with his understanding of God to say that adherents of all other religions are, for instance, going to hell or couldn't be saved, or indeed that they were somehow fundamentally in error or unjustified or completely misguided in holding their religious views. So the thought here is that there's one correct religion, okay, that in this case, in Rahner's case, he thought it was Roman Catholicism, but that the other religions are not fundamentally incorrect. And indeed, and this was very radical for its time, Rahner thought that the other religions might be means established by God for people who aren't Christian to relate to God or to live out their religious life. This would have been extremely radical, uh, and it was, it was extremely radical in its time. Uh, a lot of people now, I think, find inclusivism to be an uneasy compromise. It clearly has exclusivist tendencies, and it clearly has tendencies of a different view that I'm about to set up. In any case, we can talk about objections a little bit later on, but that's roughly the idea of inclusivism. One religion is right, is fundamentally correct, is the true religion, but it doesn't follow from that that all the other ones are completely riddled with error, completely wrong, etc. Uh, and, and certainly it doesn't follow on the soteriological side that adherents of those other religions are all condemned to hell or something like that. Okay. Uh, pluralism, the name here that you may have heard, uh, uh, the most famous uh, defender of uh, pluralism theologically and philosophically is John Hick, a uh, British uh, thinker. And pluralism goes like this. Of course, I'm simplifying all these views to get them on the table. Uh, pluralism says, look, there is such a thing as an ultimate reality. Sometimes Hick called it the real. Sometimes he called it the real in itself. Sometimes he called it ultimate reality. So that's what's really real. Using a philosophical language due to Immanuel Kant, he called this the um, noumenological realm. It's a realm that's fundamentally not accessible by human experience. What's ultimately real, he thought, cannot be experienced by humans. It somehow transcends or goes beyond all human experience. So that's the noumenal realm. That's the ultimate reality or the real, capital T, capital R. But then you've got the world of human experience. In the language of Immanuel Kant, this is uh, the phenomenal, phenomenological realm, or the phenomenal realm. This is the real as it is experienced. So this might sound like a whole lot of jargon. What on earth does this have to do with religious diversity or disagreement? Well, here's the idea. John Hick thought that there is an ultimate reality but that it is manifested in very different ways, that it's experienced in very different ways by different cultures, societies, and religious traditions. So there's only one real, but it's experienced in some parts of the world 
through Judaism. It's experienced through some, uh, in some parts of the world through Hinduism or Buddhism or Christianity. These are all, Hick would say, culturally conditioned, appropriate responses to the real. So in very simplistic slogan form, it's the idea of many roads leading to one destination. That's an image that people have of it. There's also the parable which Hick quotes of the three blind people and the elephant. You may have heard of this, right? So the idea is you've got these three blind men and they're each touching a different part of the elephant. And because they're each touching only one part of the elephant, they give very different descriptions of it. So the guy holding the trunk says, well, an elephant is kind of bendy and so forth, right? And the guy holding the leg has a different story of what the elephant is. That's supposed to be an image. It's not a perfect image, but that's supposed to be an image for pluralism. There really is one ultimate reality represented here by the elephant, but the different religions of the world are partial, incomplete, fragmented, culturally conditioned responses to it. Just like each of the three blind men has a different story to tell about the elephant, so the different religions of the world have a different story to tell about ultimate reality. Okay, that's pluralism in a nutshell. Relativism is a bit harder for me to get my mind around or even to describe, but it denies that there's one objective truth about religious reality. So relativists say things like, look, it's a mistake to think that there's one objective truth or that there's one ultimate reality. Reality instead is somehow fragmented or diffuse. Um, it's not the case that there's one objective truth about religion, but rather there are many subjective truths. So for example, someone might say, look, it's a mistake to say that, you know, I don't know, Islam is the one true religion. It's not the one true religion in an objective sense, but rather it might be true for, and indeed it is true for certain people, namely Muslims. It's true for them that Islam is, is correct or the best religion or the most appropriate kind of religious practice or whatever. But likewise, it's true for Hindus or Buddhists or Jains or Christians or, or Jews. It's true for them that their own religion is correct. That's a little bit simplistic, but that gives you a bit of the flavor of relativism. The big dividing line between pluralism and relativism, again, to stress, is that the pluralist thinks there is one ultimate reality and relativism denies this. There isn't one objective truth or ultimate reality. Okay, so that's one way to try to make sense of the great flowering of religious diversity and disagreement. Finally, of course, another response that I'm sure you'll have heard of, right, is to say, well, look, the best thing to do in, in the face of all this diversity and disagreement is to be a skeptic, is to say, look, um, uh, uh, religious beliefs are all incorrect or they're all unjustified or you shouldn't be, you can't be reasonable in holding them or something like that. Why? Because there's so much disagreement, right? Imagine a courtroom setting where you've got a bunch of squabbling witnesses, right? And they're all disagreeing with each other. You can maybe imagine circumstances where a judge might say, look, throw the whole lot of you out. It's not worth listening to any one of you. You're so ridden with disagreement. Well, that kind of reaction um, can be, I think, categorized under a skeptical response to religious disagreement. Now, this can come in all sorts of different flavors, as can the previous four views, but just, just a couple of sentences to give you two different versions of it. There's a kind of evolutionary argument for skepticism motivated by a field called the cognitive science of religion which says very roughly this, and again, I'm simplifying, uh, look, there are certain modules in our brain that give rise to religious belief. And these um, aren't selected for evolutionarily speaking because they are prone to giving us religious truths. 
Maybe they're spandrels, maybe they're offshoots, maybe they're unreliable, maybe they're this, maybe they're that. But look, we've got to recognize that we have a disposition um, worldwide towards religious beliefs, and there's a, a, an evolutionary debunking story to be told. Religious beliefs can be debunked, and indeed the diversity of religion can be um, understood best through a kind of skeptical evolutionary cognitive science uh, lens. I can say more about that if you like. And finally, then, there's another way to motivate a skeptical view, and that's a little, uh, I would say, in some ways, a little more sophisticated by a kind of philosophical argument saying that, look, in order to believe, in order to be justified in believing your favorite version of religious uh, truth, let's say your, your favorite or preferred uh, religion, in order to be justified in doing that, you've got to be able to rule out all the other alternatives. You've got to be able to give good arguments against all the other alternatives, all the other alternatives past and present. And, and maybe even if you follow the line of thought of J.L. Schellenberg, a Canadian philosopher, maybe we've even got to rule out future possibilities in order to be sure that your religious story is the correct one. And Schellenberg continues, and so would others, uh, you just can't do that. You just can't be justified or reasonable in thinking that each one of these rival religious views is correct. Think of what you'd have to be confident of, to be able to be confident, to be able to be rational in ruling out all these myriad alternatives. Most of us, maybe all of us, can't do that, says the skeptic, and so we should be skeptical about all religious claims. Okay, I hope I didn't go on too long, but that gives you a very surface level uh, overview of five isms about religious diversity and disagreement. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that class. And yeah, I remember like me personally, I found it interesting because I had always approached, I'd always said, oh, I'm an in inclusivist and that sort of thing. But I had always approached the issue through the lens of theologians, like soteri soteriology and, and that sort of thing. But when you approach it strictly epistemically or philosophically, I, I think I'm actually an exclusivist. So I, I kind of changed my position after, after studying these things and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, um, all right, cool. So, so yeah, with that said, I want to open it up to kind of free discussion. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure how we'll do this. I guess we'll, we'll start, uh, I'll start with you, David. Um, do you have any questions or comments? Sure. Uh, I would, I don't know if it's a, a question or not, uh, but I would say that there's a, another skeptical position uh, that probably could be explored <clears throat> in that. And uh, I will have to make up a name for it. And maybe Klaus, if there is actually a name for it, <laughs> you can, you can educate me on that, but I would, I would call it a, um, an agnostic skepticism. Uh, and what I mean by that is it seems like um, when skeptics talk to Christians, especially uh, exclusivists, uh, I often run into, you know, well, so you, so there is an exclusive truth. Um, and, and there's a yes to that. But then it becomes problematic when I say, so what is it? Or how do you know that your truth um, is it? And so the three ways this kind of expresses itself for me is the, the Christian can say there is an exclusive truth, but, but uh, and, and I know what it is, but I can't prove it to anyone. Uh, but, I, but I know the truth. Um, 
and one could say, well, so for the for the agnostic, well, that's great, but I I I, I don't know what you know. So one could also say there um, is an exclusive truth, but no one can know it. Um, but we but we must, you know, what God wants to do is to try our best uh, to work out our salvation and find it. <clears throat> well, okay, that's great too, but if no one can know it, uh, then no one really knows whether they're going in the right direction or not. And then another could say, there is no exclusive truth, and we're, we're all asked to just do our best. In all three of these cases, um, it's indistinguishable to the skeptic uh, for there being no exclusive truth. Because in neither of those cases can anyone show that they have landed on the exclusive truth. And so the skeptic is left with, uh, you know, the most open uh, skeptic is left with still a kind of agnosticism on, uh, on a religious truth. Because even the, even the one who is most certain that they know the truth, they have no way of, of um, demonstrating that claim uh, all the way down to the Christian who is certain that there is no way of knowing the truth. So for, for the agnostic skeptic, it all sounds the same. It all cashes out the same way. Yeah, interesting. So just so I'm clear, what you're calling the agnostic skeptic is someone who thinks that skepticism is correct, but doesn't feel that she can persuade others of this? Is no, it's, it's the skeptic that is evaluating the various Christian claims. And they're listening to the various types of Christians that you described and the various types of views, but for them, it ends up sounding the same because none of the people that they're talking to can um, uh, can say what the truth is in a way that allows them to back up their claim and prove it to someone else. So even the most certain Christian uh, who says, I've got a spiritual truth, you know, all, all the skeptic can do is either believe them or not. Uh, all the way down to the Christian who says, well, you know, maybe there isn't just one truth, or maybe we can't know the truth, but it's just a matter of trying to please God. For for the skeptic, those two claims and everything in between cashes out to be exactly the same, because for them, even if they're trying to understand what the spiritual truth is, they can't tell what it is. The, the Christian simply can't express it. And so it seems like the Christian challenge is not just saying philosophically that there is a truth, but they have to be able to communicate that truth in a way that translates to a skeptic that, uh, so that the skeptic can understand and know that it's also a truth. And if you can't do that, then one Christian claim is indistinguishable from the other. I see, I see, right. So one way I might talk about this is what, what are the requirements for being justified or being reasonable? I don't know if this would fit with your way of talking about it, but here's a very high standard, right? Um, you might say, look, you're only justified or reasonable in believing a view if you can persuade others of that view, right? Uh, that's a super high standard, right? I, I would tend to think that I could be justified or reasonable and believe in all sorts of things, even if I'm unable to persuade others. But that seems like a very high standard. Here's a weaker standard, a standard endorsed by Peter Van Inwagen, a well-known uh, philosopher. Um, uh, maybe you're justified if you can persuade a neutral audience. He doesn't actually call this a theory of justification, it's a theory of successful philosophical arguments, but anyway, 
Uh, so that would be a weaker standard, right? So you can only be justified or reasonable in believing something if you can persuade an ideal neutral audience, right? So that's a little bit weaker than being able to persuade anybody anywhere, anytime with something like that, right? But it's an open question whether that might even be too high a bar for whether a, a, a position is justified or reasonable, right? Right. I, uh, I, I'm running with my, uh, Michael mute while you're talking so that, uh, so that my background noises, um, don't interrupt. So that, <clears throat> did that answer your question? Like, I, I, I think, cause you, you raised this when we had Dr. Liz Jackson on the show as well. And I, I yeah. think your question, like what class is going over is kind of, what do you as an, on an individual level do when you're confronted with, religious disagreement and, and that sort of thing, or even intra-religious, because you're talking about different differences within Christians. Um, but what your question is, David, is you're, you're focusing on, well, for, forget about the Christians. Like, what do I do as an outsider? Kind exactly. Of I think the issue is very different for the skeptic um, than it is for the Christian. So yes, Christians have to definitely uh, navigate their religious differences. But for the skeptic, when we listen to the various Christians and any one of them or all of them are trying to convince us to, you know, change our lives to, to do something, it's kind of like saying, well, they're, they're trying to convince me of giving them a million dollars. Okay, well then that's gonna, it's going to have to be pretty convincing. But each one who tries to convince me has a different argument about what the, the truth is. And so from my perspective, I can't distinguish one for the other. And, and what they're asking is such a large ask. And um, none, uh, you know, they're, they're disagreeing with each other. And I have no, uh, let's just pretend that I have no religious background at all. <clears throat> to be able to to tell which which is which, and they can't even convince each other that that they have the truth. Mm-hmm. So it it seems to me that the skeptic has no choice uh, at best but to be uh, an agnostic on the matter, because the information that they are getting from the Christians who are all asking a big ask, a, a, a you know believe this thing that's hard to believe and change your life. Uh, accordingly, uh, if only one person came to me, maybe I could evaluate that better. But if five people come to me and all the stories are mixed up, I'm in the position of the judge in the court. Um, I'm not saying that none of them are wrong, but none of them are able, by their own admission, to um, to convince me of it because they don't have any. They don't have the compelling evidence that it would. The, the kind of evidence that it would take to do it for me. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean to the Christian in this scenario. I'm just, I'm, <clears throat> what I'm trying to say is the way Christians settle their uh, disagreements is going to be a very different thing from the way a skeptic has to settle those uh, agreements and decide whether they're going to give their life over to some God or not. Gotcha. All right, cool. So, so I'm going to let class give an answer to that, but I do want to make sure we have enough time to, if Andrew has a question on this topic before we move sure. on. Sure. So, yeah, class. If yeah, you I'll, I'll be brief. I'm not sure that it's, that it's a fundamentally different job, right? So I think if, if you're, if you um, are non-religious, right, 
and you're looking at all these uh, arrival positions being presented to you, and if none of them uh, strike you as particularly persuasive, then I think the other rational thing for you to do is to be skeptical about the matter. I don't think that makes any difference if that's a, a religious disagreement or a non-religious disagreement, right? If none of the positions seem rationally compelling or persuasive to you, then, uh, then the, the correct response is to suspend judgment. Um, uh, now, the Christian, you said, oh, maybe the Christians who are having in-house disputes with their fellow Christians are in a different position, but I'm not sure they are, right? If, and note the conditional, right, if they don't find any of the variants of Christianity plausible, then they too should be skeptic, uh, skeptical about it. But clearly the antecedent of the conditional isn't satisfied. They don't think that, that, that they're all um, implausible. They think that their particular flavor or version or argument is uniquely persuasive or compelling. Well, then the reasonable thing for them to do is to believe it, right? You should follow the evidence where it leads or you should follow the information where it leads, right? So I'm not sure it's a fundamentally different task. But anyway, I want to leave the room for Andrew as well. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense, kind of thing, from, from the perspective of the person. You know. All right, cool. Um, so Andrew, do, do you have any questions or anything you want to discuss with class about this issue of religious disagreement? Well, yeah, sure. So uh, Klaus, I think I, can, uh, I think I can tell you where I come from on the issue of epistemology uh, pretty easily. I'm, I'm an externalist. Right. So uh, by and large, how I would reach a conclusion, um, uh, even, even if it's an internal state, uh, would be something like uh, uh, the, the idea that some, some proposition is demonstrable and that that proposition is repeatable. And uh, so that's, that's sort of how I uh, get by with the checks and balances that I, uh, that I try to use. To, to form my opinions about the world. And when you were going through uh, each of the isms in your slides, and by the way, thank you uh, for those. I think I'm going to uh, write a program to copy your voice. And from now on, I'm just going to podcast with your voice uh, and, and, maybe, and maybe bring your slides, uh, slides along. So, um, so I'm an externalist and I'm a weak atheist. So that'll give you some sense of, of how I approach this. But it, it seems to me that um, when you were going through these isms, we, what, what every group wants to say is that they have um, some foundation of, of rationalism, right? As, uh, now, maybe rationalism isn't required, but I think it's, uh, that would be sort of a, of a strange place to, to be to say, I hold this view and it's not rational, right? So, so hopefully rationality is the thing that underpins uh, each of the isms or uh, do you agree with that so far? Uh, well, insofar as these are philosophical positions, they're meant to be supported by rational arguments. So sure, I'm on board so far. Okay. Then I guess um, what, what is probably at issue then epistemologically is not what camp either of us is in, but what tools we use um, if, if we want to convince someone else of our worldview, because I'm perfectly willing to acknowledge that I can have an internal state, something that I'm convinced of that I couldn't pass on to you, um, you know, in any way where I would expect you to believe it. But if I hold, uh, and by the way, I'm a skeptic, uh, weak atheist. So uh, if I hold a view uh, that I'm trying to defend, um, and, and I'm presuming that through conversation, 
um, you know, if we're, if we're engaged in a philosophical conversation, we're probably trying to convince each other, though we might not be, we might just be laying out our cases. But very often I think we're trying to convince each other. Then what we have to do there is agree on what we think of as, uh, as the kind of evidence that would convince the other person. So do you agree there? Uh, um, well, assuming the other person's conception of evidence isn't some wild or ad hoc or uh, unreasonable view, sure. Sure. So then I think how, you know, then the conversation becomes not what camp we're in, but how to resolve um, uh, which camp has, has the reasonable view. So uh, Ilyas Jankowski is, marine, uh, is a uh, artificial intelligence researcher, most recently at Google. He wrote the book Rationality. Uh, they'll probably be useful to, to link this in the show notes. But his view was that two thinking agents that claim to be rational that have reached differing views on some proposition uh, have somewhere a break in rationality. Someone has, uh, if there is in fact an objective answer to the question, that one of the thinking agents that claims to be rational uh, actually has a wrong position and that the tools of rationality ought to be able to resolve that conflict. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, good. So that sounds um, uh, so that sounds like it would be in opposition to the steadfastness view. The steadfastness view, as I define it, says that if you can be within your intellectual rights, you can be reasonable, you can be rational, and sticking to your guns, even though somebody disagrees with you. So this view uh, denies that, right? Um, what might be lurking underneath is a view called uniqueness, which I haven't talked about yet. So uniqueness is the view that one body of evidence can only uh, rationally license one view. Okay, mm. so got some scientific data, let's say uh, the uniqueness view holds that that body of data can only rationally license one view, one perspective, slightly more technically, one proposition and one propositional attitude towards it. Okay. But uniqueness is itself is a controversial view. Its rival is a view called permissiveness. And permissiveness, as the name suggests, that one body of data, one body of evidence can rationally license more than one position, right? So I, I don't know this person that you're referring to, but it sounds like this person is all in for the uniqueness view, right? Um, so, so, you know, I could say more about that on, at another time or on another show, but I just want to put a, put a flag in here to say that uniqueness is certainly a, a controversial position. And there's lots of arguments back and forth on uniqueness versus permissivism. That's interesting. I, I think probably, uh, I think probably because of my background in education, I would, uh, I would support uniqueness, but I don't, uh, I, I don't off the top of my head have any reason, have any reasonable grounds, I think, to defend it here. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll thank you for the philosophy and I'll look it up, I think is, is the best I can yeah, do. Yeah, I'd be happy to send you something on it. And my, my colleague, Liz Jackson, who was mentioned, knows an awful lot more about this debate than I do. So I, I highly recommend, uh, you know, looking into it. It's very, very interesting. I'd, I'd love to read it. And, uh, and rather than, 
rather than chasing what is going to become an increasingly esoteric conversation, I'm quite sure, uh, <laughs> because now I'm fascinated. This, this, has, uh, this has pressed my talk button. Uh, but rather than chase something that is increasingly esoteric, I'll hand the mic back and tell, I'll ask if you've got uh, a following question because I, I'm about to geek out and probably yeah. not going to do the show any good. No, well, I was going to move on to the, I wanted to make sure we had time for it for the next topic, but just on this, I, as, I, as I always do, I'll post up some of the articles uh, on this topic so you can look out, look up some of those as well on the, the blog site, Andrew. So, but yeah, I, I was in the same boat as you. I, I remember in class, I, Richard Feldman is, is the guy who advances the uniqueness thesis, I think, if I remember properly. And I was like, this is obvious. How, how could anyone disagree with this? But uh, I realized, yeah, I actually know I'm a permissivist to an extent type thing. So, so yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating debate. So I'm with you, Andrew. So yeah. Um, all right. Awesome. So, so Dale, <clears throat> Dale, I also wanted to just put a uh, cap on my own thoughts. No, no response is necessary, but one of the reasons but it's hard to express the thought that I, that, I'm trying to get at um, is because early on um, soteriology was kind of taken off the table and I was trying to respect that. But uh, you see, for the, for the skeptic, everything is soteriology. Uh, soteriology. And so there are no in-house issues for us because we're not in the house. Uh, and so if we are talking to uh, if Christians are talking to each other and they're just talking about uh, issues that they, uh, you know, want to agree are not um, <clears throat> not necessary, not uh, required uh, issues. One might talk about uh, whether baptism is um, a good thing to do or not, uh, and another person would say, "Wait a minute." Uh, I thought we weren't talking about soteriological issues because for them, baptism is absolutely essential. Um, and, you know, another person will say, well, you know, let's talk about uh, spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues. Um, uh, and another person might say, wait, wait a minute. It's absolutely a sign of uh, salvation, uh, whether you speak tongues or not. And so, I mean, all of these all of the issues that you would bring up and think are just in-house debates that don't really matter. Uh, the skeptic has been hearing this stuff for a long time, especially those who have some church background. And we have absolutely no way of distinguishing soteriological issues from uh, these uh, less important issues. And we have no reason to believe the Christian when they say, well, this is not one of these soteriological issues. Because for another Christian we talked to, it was. And so it's, you know, we are hearing this these religious differences in a fundamentally different way, I think. Yeah, I think I think that's fair enough. Kind of thing. I, I do agree that the skeptical position makes sense from the perspective of the the skeptic and that sort of thing. So, all right, cool. Um, yeah. With that said, let's get into the second main topic, and this one I'm excited to get into. It's it's on the hiddenness of God. So, um, you know, cl class, you'll you'll be uh, happy to know that Andrew is actually really he just bought Gail Schellenberg's book on the hiddenness of God. He's really into it interested in this argument so i think there'll be some good good combo but yeah with that said before we get into the combo i just want to turn it over to you class to make your opening presentation about the hiddenness of god yeah sure so why don't i if it's all right with you i'll take a few minutes and just set out um an argument uh, with a little bit of uh, preparatory remarks 
And then I can talk later on if you want about some objections to this argument. Everything in philosophy is controversial, right? Everything in philosophy of religion is controversial, and this kind of argument is no, no exception. So a little bit of stage setting, right? So um, thus the so-called problem of divine hiddenness is a bit of a misnomer, right? It makes it sound as though there's a God and this God is hiding and that's a problem for somebody or someone. Well, that may be so and it may be a problem, but that's really not what this is about. So uh, this is an argument for atheism. And it's an argument for atheism that uh, whose most prominent uh, defender is a Canadian philosopher named uh, J.L. Schellenberg, terrific, terrific philosopher, who's been defending it for several decades. And uh, the basic idea is this. Sometimes people argue that certain features of the world count against the existence of God. Okay, that's very general. So, of course, famously, people will say, well, look, here's a feature of the world that counts against the existence of God, evil. If there were a God, God wouldn't allow this evil or that evil or any evil or so much evil or whatever. Okay, the hiddenness argument is not the problem of evil, but it's similar in that it points to a certain phenomenon in the world and says, hey, this phenomenon counts against the existence of God. So there's a structural similarity. So what's the phenomenon? The phenomenon is non-belief in God. The phenomenon is more particularly reasonable non-belief in God. Schallenberg and others say that, look, if there were a God, there would be a lot less Virtually none at all, in fact, non-belief in God. Okay, so that's the phenomenon that's held to count against the existence of God. Now, that kind of um, argument can be spelled out in a variety of ways. It can be spelled out deductively or inductively or abductively, a kind of inference to the best explanation type argument. I'm going to focus here in one on one version of this argument, which I've adapted a little bit from Schellenberg. So it just is a series of numbered steps, numbered propositions, numbered premises in an argument leading to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. But keep your, keep your mental eye on that thought, which is that um, the phenomenon here is some version of non-belief. And something about that phenomenon is held to show that God doesn't exist. Okay, so here we go. Step one in the argument. Well, I've got to move something that's blocking my ability to read my own slide. There we are. Step one of the argument says, and it's a little bit of a convoluted way if you're not used to reading arguments like this, it says that if no perfectly loving God exists, then God doesn't exist. What that statement or premise or proposition is saying is that it is a necessary condition for something or someone to be God, that that being be perfectly loving. To put it a different way, being perfectly loving is an essential attribute of God. Okay, that's the claim in step one of the argument. If God exists, God is perfectly loving. Or to put it contrary-wise, if no perfectly loving God exists, well, then God doesn't exist. God has to be perfectly loving in order to be God or in order to exist. That's the first claim. Second claim. The second claim seeks to unpack something about love. If there is a God who is loving, that being is always open to having a personal relationship with each person. Well, maybe not each and every person. Maybe there are some people who, for one reason or another, are incapable of having a relationship with God. But let's sort of set those aside as I'm effectively doing in brackets here. Here's the idea. It is part and parcel of being loving, of loving persons, that God would want to have a loving personal relationship with every person. That's what God would want, or what God would be open to. That's what the second step of the argument is saying. The third step of the argument 
is trying to articulate what would be required for such a relationship to occur. Now, it's very important before I get into this that I clarify something, because this argument has been misinterpreted all sorts of ways, as Schellenberg knows all too well. Schellenberg is not saying that God would somehow want to force a relationship with each and every person. Okay, Schellenberg is not saying that. Schellenberg is saying, however, that if there were a loving God, that God would want to have a personal relationship with everyone. And what such a God would do would be to make sure that such a relationship is at least possible. God would want to do what is minimally required for each and every person to be in relationship with God. Okay, what's minimally required to be in a relationship with someone? Well, you've got to believe that that person exists. So this is how we get to step three. If there's a God who's always open to a personal relationship with everyone who's capable of it, then no such person fails to believe that God exists. Okay, in other words, everyone would believe that God exists because you can't be, Schellenberg thinks, in a personal relationship with God unless at the very least you believe that God exists. Okay, I couldn't be in a personal relationship with my wife if I fail to believe that this being exists, right? Suppose I'm struck on the head and I have amnesia or something like that, right? I couldn't be in this kind of relationship with my wife if I somehow failed to believe that she exists. So in order for a relationship to be possible, Schellenberg says, God is going to ensure that everyone believes that God exists. Couple of caveats. Um, there might be people who are blameworthy for not believing that God exists. So let's set those aside. Maybe there are people like that. But let's say this, no one would, through no fault of their own, fail to believe that God exists. That's what the word blamelessly is doing in step three of the argument. Okay, so let's compress things a little bit. We can basically combine uh, step two and step three into this. If a perfectly loving God exists, then nobody ever blamelessly fails to believe that God exists. So that's the expectation. If theism is true, God exists, God is perfectly loving, then everyone or just about everyone should believe that God exists. Why? Because that's a minimal precondition for being in a relationship with God. And that's what God wants. Why, as a little aside, why does God want that? Well, Schellenberg says, look what theists commonly say. Theists commonly say that being in a certain kind of relationship with God is the greatest good for beings, that it would be an ultimate good, that it would be a, a, a supremely wonderful thing for beings to be in a relationship with their creator. So that's what God wants. Part of love is wanting the best for the people we love. So if what is best for, the, for us is that we be in relationship with God, then God wants that. God's not going to force it, but God's going to put the minimum conditions in place. And the minimum conditions involve belief, widespread, almost universal belief that God exists. But guess what? There isn't widespread, mere universal belief that God exists. There are people who are perfectly capable of having a relationship with God, who don't believe that God exists, and they don't believe it through no fault of their own. Okay, so step five is an empirical claim about the world. This is the recalcitrant data, the data that counts against theism, according to Schellenberg. The existence of reasonable unbelievers. Okay? Um, theists, it can include uh, religious people who are, who are non-theistic and non-religious people as well. I think Schellenberg would say of all the people who lived and walked the earth, human persons who lived and walked the earth, before theism was even a going concern, 
right? Before Judaism, before Christianity, before Islam, before any other theistic religion, there were an awful lot of uh, people who lived in Wakbir. Those people, through no fault of their own, failed to believe that God exists. And that, Schellenberg says, is not what you should expect if theism is true. So five is the empirical evidence that counts against theism, according to this argument. So, pulling together step four and step five, step four says, look, if you'd have a God, if God were to exist, you'd expect this, but step five, you don't get this, therefore step six, there is no perfectly loving God. And of course, we pointed out, or the argument pointed out in step one, that being perfectly loving is a necessary condition, an essential attribute for God. Well, so if a perfectly loving God doesn't exist, then God doesn't exist because God, in order to be God, in order to be an unsurpassable being, is supposed to be perfectly loving. So there it is, a seven-step argument for atheism pointing to a phenomenon in the world, namely the existence and widespread existence of reasonable, inculpable, blameless non-belief in God. That, Schellenberg says, is not what you would expect if God were to exist. And so therefore, he says, God does not exist. It's an immensely controversial argument and, uh, and, uh, and a very innovative one as well. So there, I'll open it uh, if people want to comment or respond, and I do have a slide or two on various responses if you guys are interested. I'm happy to walk through that. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, I think, um, yeah, well, yeah, why don't you go th run through your slide of, of the various objections? Sure. Um, and then I'll turn it straight to Andrew uh, to give the questions and that sort of thing. Perfect. So there's all sorts of objections to this argument, right? Like I said, everything in philosophy is controversial, but here are some, some of these may have occurred to you already. And so, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but here are some uh, reasonably well-known objections to this kind of argument. So where are they? Here we are. So look, you could avoid the argument altogether. The argument wouldn't even get off the ground if you didn't think that God were loving. So you might say, look, I'm a theist, I believe in God, but it's not part of my conception of God that God is loving, right? So that's one way to avoid the argument or short-circuit it, if you like, entirely, right? The argument has no purchase on a conception of God who is not loving, right? So you might say, you don't have to say this, but you might say, look, I believe that God is benevolent, having a good will, but not loving. Okay, so that's one uh, move. Schellenberg, of course, thinks that this is not a, a decent response, right? He thinks that any God worthy of the name, any God worthy of being thought an unsurpassable personal being is going to be loving. But anyway, that's one way that you can resist the argument. Another way to resist the argument, if it comes up, I'm frantically hitting keys to see if I can get it to come up here. Ah, uh, there we are. Uh, is to say, well, wait a minute, all this business about inculpable or blameless uh, non-belief is, uh, is the mistake, right? Maybe everybody, and this has been a historically prominent view, certainly in the history of Christianity, uh, maybe everyone who fails to believe in God is at fault, is blameworthy for failing to believe in God. So it's not God's fault somehow or other, it's the people's fault. They're somehow ignoring the signs or missing the evidence or not being uh, you know, finally enough uh, perceivers of God or whatever. So maybe everyone who doesn't believe in God is blameworthy and then it's the people's fault. It's not in any meaningful sense God's fault that there isn't, sorry about the background noise, that there isn't more, um, uh, it's not God's fault that there's so much non-belief in the world. Maybe it's people's fault. Okay. Uh, here's a very creative objection. I'm not going to say much about it, but here's a very creative objection. Some, some people, there's a couple of papers that seek to find fault in the argument at this point, 
Some people uh, will say I'm thinking here of a terrific paper by Andrew uh, Cullison, uh, and there's one or two other papers in this vein that say, look, uh, the mistake in this argument is thinking that belief in the other party is essential for being in a relationship with that person. Maybe you can be in a personal relationship with God without believing that God exists. Okay, controversial as well, uh, but I think a very innovative response. Here is a more popular kind of response. So remember the recalcitrant data, the phenomenon that's supposed to be a problem for theism is this idea that there's lots of reasonable non-belief out there. God would never allow so much reasonable non-belief. Well, one way to object to, another way to object to step three in the argument is to say, well, wait a minute, it's a little bit too much to say that God would never allow any non-belief. Rather, we should say that God would allow, wouldn't allow non-belief unless God had a good reason for it. So here's a tweak. I've changed three to three prime. Analytic philosophers love to do this. So here's a slight variant of three. And the variant, the difference here is the stuff in yellow. So here it is. If there's a God who's always open to a relationship with everybody, or at least all the capable people, then no one uh, like that would ever fail to believe that God exists. Unless, this is the new part, unless God has a good reason, a morally acceptable reason, a morally sufficient reason for permitting this. For permitting what? For permitting non-belief. Maybe God has a good reason. Of course, you see a move like this in response to arguments from evil as well, right? First move, God wouldn't allow any evil whatsoever. Response, well, I don't know. Maybe God would allow some evil provided that God had a morally sufficient reason for doing so. Okay. Well, the minute you make that move, then the debate becomes, well, could God ever have a morally adequate reason for permitting non-belief? Just like in the parallel case in the problem of evil, the debate becomes, well, what would God's reasons be anyway for allowing non-belief? Okay, but suppose you're on board with this tweak. Suppose you say, all right, that's right. Maybe God could allow non-belief. Well, then the data, then this isn't recalcitrant data after all. What would be recalcitrant data is if we could determine that God lacks a morally sufficient reason for permitting this. Okay, so if you make this move, then you've got to change, whoops, then you've got to change step five to add in this business about morally sufficient reasons. Okay, that's just sort of cleaning up the logic here. So let's talk very briefly about this claim, right? So here's the, here's the new empirical claim of this argument. Look, there are lots of people in the world who don't believe that God exists and therefore can't have a personal relationship with God. And furthermore, here's the yellow part, God has no good reason for allowing this. Okay, well, critics of this argument have said maybe God would have or could have morally adequate, morally acceptable, morally sufficient reasons for allowing there to be people who don't believe that God exists. Maybe some people have said, allowing this makes moral freedom possible, right? Maybe, maybe you couldn't really be free if you knew that God were to exist. If everyone knew that God exists, it's a bit like, you know, the state trooper with the visible speed trap, right? You're not going to speed if the state trooper is there with his radar gun or whatever, right? Or well, let's make it even more clear, riding in the front seat with you. If the state trooper is riding in the front with you, you're not gonna speed. Yeah, you have the physical capability to step on the gas, sure, but your freedom is still fundamentally compromised. You're just not gonna do it. Whereas if the state trooper hides, it permits you to make the free choice about whether or not to behave appropriately. 
Well, you see the analogy, right? God hides, so to speak. By hiding, I simply mean God permits some non-belief in order to either enable or maybe to enhance our moral freedom. Uh, related but distinct move. Uh, here's one reason why God might not reveal God's existence to us. There are great goods. This is the line of thought due to Richard Swinburne. There are great goods involved in thinking carefully about God, about doing, I don't know, theology or philosophy of religion, seeking knowledge of God, both individually and maybe cooperatively. Maybe there are great goods involved in the cooperative search of the podcasting, lots of other things, writing philosophy articles, opening seminaries, etc. Maybe there are great goods involved, um, and those goods would be compromised or undermined or mitigated or militated against in some way if God were just to make it abundantly clear to all of us that God indeed exists. A third reason why some people say God might be morally permitted to allow some non-belief is that maybe some people, maybe lots of people, aren't quite ready to take the news yet. Maybe some people would react badly if they were to come to believe that God exists. Maybe they'd resist God and turn against God and so forth. And maybe what a loving God would do, at least sometimes, would be to hide until these people hide, quote unquote, right, to permit uh, non-belief, allow people to not believe in God for a time, until they're spiritually or in some other sense ready for belief in God and all that entails. So those are some potential morally sufficient reasons, some alleged morally sufficient reasons. And then, of course, the debate becomes, are these good reasons anyway, right? Finally, uh, there is a tradition in philosophy of, of philosophy of religion, uh, certainly with respect to arguments from evil and with respect to arguments from hiddenness, that appeal to the idea that God might have reasons that are beyond our ken. God, after all, is a very powerful, very knowledgeable being, and God might allow some non-belief, some of the time for some people, or maybe much of the time for many people, in order to achieve some outweighing, justifying, greater good that is not known to us. So it's an appeal to unknown reasons. And that's a, a very popular, but also very controversial uh, response. So there's a bit of a flavor of some different responses to this particular argument. Each one of them is, as I said, controversial. Okay, is that enough uh, stage setting? I hope so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, perfect. Thank you very much. Um, all right, cool. Do you, do you mind if I ask, I think there's one thing, and I'm just sort of curious, so I, I want to ask this. So with your premise five, um, okay, what if someone just denies flat out your premise five, that there are such people by appealing to the temporal qualification? So maybe at one time, like in 2017, there was someone who didn't believe, but sooner or later, before what I call the point of no return, everyone that's not blameless or and God doesn't have a moral justification, God will reveal the the truth for that. And that point of no return, who knows when that could be? That that could be at some point in the afterlife or whenever, right? Someone could use that. So yeah, I'm just sort of curious, do you see that sort of, okay, you know, like with Schellenberg, he'll say, well, God would have to reveal quickly or something like that. So I don't know. What, what do you make of that temporal? Decision? Yeah, good. That sounds like a bit of a hybrid response. It incorporates a little bit of the thought behind resisting step five, but it also seems connected to this idea that um, maybe some people are go, that some people aren't spiritually ready for it yet or something like that, right? So it seems, it seems uh, connected to both of those thoughts, right? So yeah, here's what I think Schellenberg would say, right? He would say, um, uh, uh, look, 
a loving being at all times is going to be available, right? He loves to use the analogy, as you know, Dale, of a, of a loving mother. So how would you expect a loving mother to behave? Would a loving mother hide, uh, uh, not reveal her presence to um, her child, whom she loves most dearly, uh, for some times, only to do it at some later time? Schellenberg thinks that's very difficult to understand, very difficult to imagine. Uh, some beings might do that, but loving beings wouldn't. A loving mother would never hide. Remember, right, Schellenberg's going to say a lot of people suffer a great deal uh, for, uh, um, by not knowing, by not reasonably believing that God exists. They find it struggle. Uh, they find it to be a struggle. They find it a dark night of the soul and so forth, right? He compares it to a child crying out in the forest. You know, where's my mother? I can't find my mother. Would a loving mother hide like that? Schellenberg says, no, no, no. A loving mother would always be available for a relationship unless it was beyond her power to do so. And that, of course, is where Schellenberg thinks the analogy breaks down. It's never outside of God's power to be open to a relationship. God could always make a relationship possible by inculcating theistic belief in each and every one of us. Right? So you may not be persuaded, but I think that's the way I think that's the way he would respond, that it's not good enough to wait. Perfect. All right, cool. So at this point, I'm going to turn it straight over to Andrew, because I know that you, you've been um, reading Schellenberg's book, and you're really interested in this thing. So yeah, do, do you have any questions or any topics you want to discuss about this issue of the hiddenness of God, Andrew? Probably a couple of things, and I'll, I'll try to be brief at each point so that, uh, so that David can come in too, because I you know, want some dialogue as much as, as, much as we can. Um, so... First, thank you for the recap of Schellenberg's argument. As, as far as I can tell, uh, that's as good a recap as I've ever seen um, with the understanding that I've, uh, I've only got two sources for this argument that, that sort of qualify as academic sources. That's his 2015 book and the SEP article on hiddenness that I don't think he, uh, that I don't think he authored. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, yes, <laughs> but it is a good recap. So, um, it struck me that that one of the one of the replies to Schellenberg about the you know the state trooper that's sort of uh, waiting in hiding to give someone a ticket right uh, would would place a contradiction uh, uh, on God that is that is perfectly loving because I think it would be hard to defend the ground eventually uh, that an all loving God would lie in wait to give someone a ticket. I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, right. That's right. So, uh, so it seems somehow unjust or, or like some kind of trickery for God to, uh, right? So, so the first thing is we got to be careful about the giving a ticket analogy. We don't want to say that, or we don't want to add to the argument that God would, you know, eternally punish non-believers or something like that. That's no part of this argument. Right, that, that may or may not be the sober truth of the matter. I suspect it's not, uh, but uh, that's no part of this argument, right? So then think of it this way: God has these goals, right? On the one hand, God wants to have a you know explicit, conscious, personal relationship with all people who are capable of it, okay? But also, God really wants us to be moral agents who have a really morally serious kind of freedom, right? So God has these two goals, and they're great goals. But the argument might go, look, you just can't have both of those things. You can't always have people believing in God and at the same time have perfect, uh, morally serious, robust uh, freedom, right? So God can't achieve, God, omnipotent though he is, can't achieve both of these goals. 
So uh, the, the best compromise, right? God would unerringly choose the best, let's say. The best compromise is to let there be some non-belief in the interest of uh, permitting or enhancing a serious kind of moral freedom, recognizing that there's a cost to this, and the cost is that not everyone is going to at all times believe that God exists. But then you make up for that in the afterlife, as Dale suggested, or whatever, right? So that's, that's maybe a more fruitful way to think of it. It's an interesting problem for me, um, and there, there may be good philosophical answer here, but it's an interesting problem to me to suggest, it, just taking Schellenberg's argument as, as wrote, um, if there's this all-loving God, and uh, he doesn't have to be necessarily all-powerful, but he does have to be powerful enough uh, so that any condition that human beings, uh, I'm sorry, I'm modifying Schellenberg's thoughts here slightly, but I think the God doesn't have to be all powerful. He just has to be powerful enough that, that any of his will can align uh, with any condition that you find human beings in. So finite creatures. So um, the thing that I find interesting is if, if it is always better to be in a relationship with God, um, so we cannot find ourselves in any finite condition, uh, or, or sorry, in any temporal condition as finite beings. That uh, it is better to be in uh, without God than with God. Uh, it seems to me to argue against the the loving criteria. Um, and if there is a if there is a place where uh, it is better to be without God, uh, I think that argues substantially against the idea that we should all want to find a God. Um, so, uh, well, let me just ask if that thought's clear to you first. So it sounded like a dilemma, and I just want to get clear on what the two horns of the dilemma are. So the first horn or the first point of the dilemma is that, um, to run it by me again, just so I'm clear. Sure. So in the, in the first condition, um, any state that you could be in with God is better than any state that you could be in without God, okay? And if there is a God then, and here's the dilemma, that would allow you to go through something that is better for you without him than with him, then it would call into question the idea that we should all want salvation because there might indeed then be some condition. Uh, even even at the end of your life, that was better for you to be in and have salvation closed to you because even at the end, this condition is better for you to be in uh, without God than with God. So while this is not Schellenberg's argument, I think it's a natural consequence that if God allows conditions for you to be in that are better without him, then that naturally brings into question whether it would be better for everyone to be saved. And if it is not better for everyone to be saved, uh, then I think we've got a, a much bigger set of questions to ask. Yeah, good. Okay, so I think I get it now. So, so let's talk about this phrase that it's, uh, there are conditions that are better for you to be without God. That was your phrase, right? I'll yeah, that's right. A little bit, that's right? So, and I think the jumping off point was the freedom stuff. So it might at certain, let's, let's grant this, right? It might at certain points of your life uh, be better for you to not believe that God exists because that allows for a certain kind of moral freedom. Suppose we just grant that, 
right? And you're saying, right. well, that calls into question whether salvation is desirable or something like that. But I think that's where a critic can push back. You might say, look, sal salvation is desirable. The ultimate end, I mean, you know, the Westminster Catechism, right? Uh, uh, man's uh, chief end is to love God and glorify him forever or, or forever or something like that, right? Um, uh, uh, if something like that is true, then you might say, look, the whole idea of salvation or being ultimately in an eternal, conscious, reciprocal, loving relationship with God, that still is the chief end of man. Um, but it may also be that at certain points in your life, uh, it's better for you to not believe that God exists because that achieves some other good. So I don't really see the tension between those two things, right? I don't think it follows, let's say, from the fact that someone might say at certain times it's better for freedom if God hides. I don't think it follows from that fact that um, that the goods of an eternal, uh, you know, loving uh, relationship with God in the afterlife are somehow compromised or rendered incoherent. I can hear David. Uh, well, at least I'm, I'm guessing. David. Yeah. Yeah, David, if you want to chime in, do you have any questions or things you want to discuss with class about the hiddenness of God? Sure. My, <clears throat> my thoughts revolve around uh, the freedom uh, aspect of this. Uh, this has always been the weakest um, of the Christian responses for me that if that th they use phrases like forced uh, knowledge of God and that, that sort of thing, which, which just seems empty that that wouldn't apply to any, anything in a real world scenario. You'd have to be talking hypothetically about a God to even use that language. Um, so why uh, would a, you know, God making himself known be some kind of, unwanted forced thing. And if you're saying, well, what God wants people to do is come to him willingly. I don't see why making himself known would um, abrogate our ability to come to him willingly, uh, unless, unless then your argument is to know him is to love him. So if you, if you knew him, you have no choice, but to love him. Uh, and then he would be taking away choice, but I don't, uh, I don't see in scripture where that is the case at all. Uh, the the uh, demons knew him better than any of us will ever know him, um, at least in this uh, life. And a third of them chose, <clears throat> excuse me, not to love him. So that would, that would be the first part of choice. Uh, and let me just throw in the second part um, now, and you can respond to them both. Uh, the second part of this would be, uh, I, I think the Christian is married to this notion of, free will choice uh, a little bit too closely because we, we decide arbitrarily which freedoms we think are important. So for instance, uh, as a quote unquote free being, I don't have the freedom to, uh, you know, end a person's life by shooting lasers out of my fingers. That's, that's a freedom I don't have. Now we don't think that our freedom, that God is restricting our freedom by not giving us laser fingers. Um, but that's a freedom that the Christian would say is unimportant. And likewise, I don't, I, I see no reason why we need the freedom to choose to, to believe that he exists rather give us the reality that he exists and let us have the freedom to decide whether we want the relationship or not. Uh, but to, but to suggest that it is a, an, an inherent part of freedom, free will choice, that you have to not know he exists, does not follow in any logical way that I can understand, unless, once again, the Christian argument is, well, to know him is to love him, and then, so if you knew that he was there, you wouldn't have any choice. 
Yeah, good. I think you put that really nicely. I think that is exactly the right way to respond to this uh, freedom uh, objection, right? That is exactly the right way to respond. I think you said it really, really well, right? Um, uh, and Schellenberg would, would, I think, enthusiastically endorse what you're saying here, right? Um, God doesn't have to give us every freedom under the sun. God doesn't have to give us the freedom of whether or not to believe that God exists. God could just uh, ensure that we all believe that God exists in some very minimal sense, right? Uh, and that doesn't entail having a relationship with God. Quite to the contrary, it makes possible a relationship with God, but it doesn't entail it or require it or even make it likely. So that's precisely where our freedom can, uh, where our freedom can still operate in a rich and robust sense. So that's exactly the way that uh, that Schellenberg and others would respond to this uh, criticism. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Uh, any anything else from anybody on the hiddenness of God? We've got about five minutes before I move on to the next topic, or we can just move on to the to the third topic. Anyone have any other questions? I'm good. Now, what is the third topic? The third topic, is there a best possible world? Uh, we may come back to, um, I, I do have a follow-on to hiddenness, uh, but I suspect it can come up in the next section, so I'll wait. So do I, which is why I restricted my comment to freedom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're probably not done here. <laughs> Sounds good to be continued. So, all right, cool, cool class. With, with that said then, um, I'll turn it back to you to give kind of the opening lecture on uh, the questions related to the best possible world, uh, because you're sh I can't see the questions but yeah what what is this concept of a best possible world uh what are reasons to think that there is or isn't such a thing and um how does that relate to atheism you can make your presentation terrific yeah thanks for the setup that's great so uh again i'll try to be brief and, and speed me up if i'm uh, getting too wordy here you know terrible habit of professors as so, as a as a participant in the discussion i can say uh you know, if I were moderating this discussion, I would not slow you down at all. I, uh, I find your um, commentary extremely valuable. And I, uh, you know, there's some philosophers that I enjoy listening to, and you happen to be one of them. So well, talk you. away. Well, I did good. Warning, like, he's taking the knife out right now. Warning. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, okay, so let's start with a little background then, right? So uh, the way philosophers use the term, uh, there's this distinction uh, between the actual world and a whole host of alternatives, alternatives, possible, other possible worlds. Okay, so let's first sort of roughly define the actual world. So think of history as it has unfolded uh, to the present day, not only human history, not only geological history, but, uh, you know, astronomical history, terrestrial history, the whole bit, right? Everything uh, that has ever happened, the current moment, everything that will happen on some views anyway, all of that, the way reality actually is, all of that is encompassed by the actual world. That is the actual world, reality as it really is. But things might have been different. I'm currently wearing, what am I wearing? A dark uh, charcoal colored shirt, but I might have worn a red shirt. So, so using possible worlds talk, what philosophers will say is there's a possible world in which Class Curry shows up for the interview in a red shirt instead of a charcoal shirt. And then there's a possible world in which he fails to show up for the interview at all. And on and on and on. Right? Then Nazis might have won World War II and so forth and so on. Right? So each one of these alternate scenarios, alternate realities, if you will, philosophers call a possible world. Okay, so there are untold numbers of possible worlds, but precisely one actual world. Possible worlds are just a façon de parler, a way of speaking about the ways things might have happened, but did not. Okay, 
Now, uh, next step, and people get off the bus at various points here, but the next step is that um, maybe, uh, at least there's a long tradition of talking as though possible worlds can be ranked. That there is such a thing that you can sensibly talk about the overall value or goodness of a possible world. And this might sound a little bit crazy when I put it uh, abstractly like that, but we do talk in ways very much like that, right? We say, well, things would have been worse if the Nazis had won the war, and things would have been better if coronavirus had been contained to the lab in China or whatever, right? Uh, so we talk like that. We have strong moral or value-based instincts to talk that way. And this suggests, maybe, that it makes sense to say that worlds are things that can be ranked, that they're good or bad, that's objective ranking, that one world can be better than or worse than another, that's a relative ranking. So pulling it together, it's commonly taken for granted that possible worlds have an overall value that can be cashed out in absolute or in relative terms. Not everybody agrees with that, of course, but that's a, a very um, influential way of talking about these matters. All right. So everybody's heard the phrase, the best of all possible worlds, famously associated uh, with uh, Leibniz, the philosopher Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who thought that not only there was a best of all possible worlds, he thought not only that there is a best of all possible worlds, but also that this is it, that the actual world is in fact the best of all possible worlds. Okay, so here's two different scenarios. In fact, there's a third one, but I, in the interest of time, I won't get into the third one. So imagine all those possible worlds, right, as a kind of hierarchy, right, because we're going to rank them all. We can be neutral about whether there's ties and this sort of thing, right? Let's sort of set that to the side. The question is, is there an upper bound, yes or no? Is there a top point to this hierarchy or is there no upper bound? Is there no highest member of the stack? However you want to talk about it. Okay, and we're going to set aside for now the question of whether the actual world, the world we inhabit, reality as we know it, we're going to set aside the question of whether that is the best possible world. So the abstract question is, look, of all the ways that things could have been, is there a unique best? Or instead, is there an infinite hierarchy of better and better scenarios, better and better possibilities? In other words, better and better possible worlds. Okay, so let's look at both of those scenarios in turn. Suppose first that there is exactly one best of all possible worlds. There are objections to theism, theism, the claim that God exists. There are objections to theism on that view. That's what I'm going to run through in this slide. There's also a really interesting argument for theism on the rival view, namely that there's no best of all possible worlds, but that instead worlds go up in this infinite hierarchy of increasing goodness. Okay, but let's stay with the maybe simpler scenario that there's a unique best of all possible worlds. Well, God, as traditionally understood, is supposed to be an unsurpassable being, a being who is omnipotent, perfectly powerful, omniscient, perfectly knowledgeable, perfectly good, perfectly rational. So if God is faced with a choice of all these different worlds, and there's exactly one that is the best of the heap, the idea is, the very traditional idea, the Leibnizian idea, and lots of other philosophers have held it as well, is that God would choose the best. God would pick the best of all possible worlds. Now, a possible world is not necessarily a creation. We're leaving open the question of whether God would create rocks and trees and people and planets, right? We're just talking about a reality. So there's a best reality. Maybe the best reality only contains God and no rocks and trees and people. Okay, 
Set all that aside. The idea, though, is that if there's the best choice, a perfectly knowledgeable, perfectly good, perfectly powerful, perfectly rational being would infallibly pick the best option. God wouldn't make any mistakes, right? I mean, just by for a quick analogy, you know, like I'm a pretty good dad, and suppose you can rank the, uh, I don't know, the birthday presents that I can pick for my son from one to 10, one being the best and 10 being the worst. And suppose all the presents are within my power to afford and I know about all of them and I'm reasonably rational and so forth. Well, you'd think that if I'm a good dad, I would pick the best present for my son. Maybe the best present isn't the most expensive present, by the way, right? But I would choose the best in virtue of being a good parent. But of course, God is still far greater than a good parent. God isn't just somewhat powerful, somewhat rational, somewhat knowledgeable, a perfectly unsurpassable being who couldn't fail to be unsurpassable. That's what essentially unsurpassable means, by the way. A being like that would of necessity choose the best of all possible worlds. Okay, so hopefully you're with me so far. The ontology is this, the scenario is this, you've got this series with one top member, and the theological claim is God would choose that one. Well, here come some objections, right? So some would say, listen, God would choose that one. That sounds an awful lot like God had to choose that one. That sounds an awful lot like God couldn't possibly have chosen anything else. And maybe it's a requirement for freedom that you be able to do alternate actions to the ones that you actually perform. So on that way of thinking, God isn't free anymore. God has to choose the best. God is sort of like some sort of automaton or robot who sort of picks, you know, identifies the highest member of the series and picks it. Not free in any meaningful sense. So goes the objection. Well, it's a traditional theistic belief that God is free in choosing a reality to create, that God is free in choosing this over that, so that counts against a traditional theistic idea. It's certainly also a traditional theistic idea that God is worthy of thanks and praise for choosing the world that God did, um, but it's hard to know on this model how that could make any sense. How could you thank God for doing what God had to do as a matter of practically of logic? How could you praise God sensibly for doing what God could not have failed to do, namely choosing the best? So those are two objections to a certain understanding of God. A more philosophical objection is this. So if God exists and if God has to choose the best, then God will choose the best. In other words, there's no possible scenario. There's no scenario at all where God does anything different. In other words, things could not be different. Nothing could be possibly different from how it is. So all of our uh, free will, if free will requires alternate possibilities, all of our free will is an illusion. I said earlier, oh, maybe I could have worn a red shirt. Well, if this is the best possible world, that's actually false, according to this way of thinking. I couldn't have worn a red shirt. The way that things unfold in the best possible world is the only way that things ever could have been, because God infallibly picks it. God essentially picks it. God necessarily picks it. So nothing could have been otherwise. And that sounds to many philosophers' ears completely burning. It seems obvious to lots of philosophers that there are indeed alternate possibilities. So modal collapse here, modal is a term for a sort of term of art for these various possibilities. The thought is that all these possibilities collapse into just one. That's the idea behind objection three. And that seems totally crazy to a lot of people that there could only be one, um, uh, that there could only be one reality, that things could not possibly have been otherwise. Okay, then finally is the claim that you're more familiar with probably. This is an objection not against the view so much, but an objection against theists who hold this view, 
right? And it's this uh, that, uh, look, look around you, right? Is this really the best of all possible worlds? This was the objection to Leibniz that Voltaire made famous in his novel Candide, right? It's the objection that's been around since time immemorial. Things could have been better. This right here, all around us, this is not the best of all possible worlds. The best of all possible worlds does not feature the mass death of coronavirus and the mass death of the Holocaust and lots of other things. So arguments from evil are deployed here. Uh, arguments from hiddenness are deployed here. God could do better by ensuring that we all believe in God and so forth, right? So there's lots of ways to spell out objection four. But that's an objection specifically against people who are theists and who think that God would choose the best of all possible worlds. They have to hold, therefore, by a matter of a sheer logic, that this indeed around us is the best of all possible worlds. And a lot of people are going to say, that's crazy. Okay, well, one famous response to all these kinds of worries is to say, well, wait a minute, actually, there's a mistake here in our line of thinking. And the mistake is this, it's perfectly okay for God to choose a world that's not the best. Sounded a bit paradoxical a few minutes ago, maybe when I was setting it out, but there have been serious arguments for the thought that it's perfectly okay for an unsurpassably good, unsurpassably rational being to choose a suboptimal world. And maybe this is the world that God chose. We can thereby grant that it's suboptimal, but not be drawn, not be forced to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. So that's one important response to these objections. Uh, I can pause there, or I can look, if you want, at the other side of the coin, which is, the, remember, the scenario that there's no best of all possible worlds, but instead an infinite hierarchy. There's a really interesting argument for atheism on that side as well. But you guys tell me, you want to pause here or move on? I've got one observation, Dale. Well, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, I guess my one observation is um, if, if God is choosing the very best possible outcome, uh, and we simply don't know it. Uh, an unhidden God could clear that up for us pretty easy. Right. I see there's a connection to that. Yeah, right. An unhidden <laughs> God. So extending Schellenberg's argument. Schellenberg just says God's going to ensure that we all exist. But uh, sort of Schellenberg Prime might say God's not only going to ensure that uh, we all know that he exists, God's going to ensure that we also understand that this is the best of all possible worlds, appearances to the contrary. Yeah, it's, it's sort of philosophical humor, but it, uh, it's only mildly tongue-in-cheek because I do think that if we are living in the best possible world, um, regardless, regardless of um, what kind of God it was, um, uh, it wouldn't have to be an all-loving God. Let's say it's an all-benevolent God, um, you know, and, and love is not the, the key criteria for that God. It still seems that uh, under the under the salvation uh, sort of idea, where where God wants to give us something at the end, um, he should be motivated uh, to it to at least demonstrate to us that this is the best that can be done. Yeah, sure. So there's two parts to it, right? So this is really a way of responding to uh, objection four, right? You could double down and say, listen, this is the best of all possible worlds. And, uh, you know, then you got to explain why appearances are so to the contrary. And then you can tell a variety of stories. Maybe it has to do with sin. Maybe it has to do with this or that, right? So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, maybe the, maybe the hidden God would come back and say, eventually, right, after, uh, after judgment or whatever, maybe he would come back and say, but to get to the best possible world, uh, I had to be hidden for some reason that's not obvious to us. I, I don't know. That's right. Uh, Absolutely. That's what, that's what some people are going to say. Yeah. Can I ask a, a quick question on at this part's point? Um, 
so I'm interested in your your thing. So either there has to be one best possible world, or the other option is okay. Well, maybe God creates a suboptimal world. For for me, I do believe that there are best possible worlds. There's at least two or more, and I, I think okay. that Christians would think that there's uh, the world where God exists alone, and then there's this world. So there's at least two worlds that have an equal overall value. Could maybe there's more maybe there's other worlds that have equal overall value so as long as there's a lateral change you're not choosing a you don't have to go with the suboptimal world what, what do you think of that yeah good so this is the very scenario that i said oh i'm skipping over a scenario this is exactly the one right unless there's ties at the top scenario so no i'm glad you i'm glad you pointed to it so maybe there's ties at the top maybe there are seven unsurpassable worlds they're all as good as each other those seven and they're all better than every other world Right? Or maybe there's infinitely many ties at the top, right? Maybe there's an infinitely many weighed tied at the top, to put it slightly more precisely, right? Um, so you might say, okay, well, that's going to help with this objection because now God is free to pick any one of those worlds because they're all equally good, right? Well, you can imagine the criticism. So there's the one criticism says, yeah, but God wasn't free to pick any of the surpassable ones. So God's freedom is pretty limited. And secondly, people are going to say, well, the freedom to choose between, um, you know, options that are equal is not a serious kind of freedom at all. It's kind of freedom precisely when the stakes don't matter very much, right? That's the kind of argument that's given, right? If you, if you present me with a million identically good cakes for my son's birthday party, uh, you know, it's not like a seriously free choice to pick one of them. Uh, you know, they're all as good as any other, right? There's no meaningful freedom there. So goes the objection, right? Um, now, likewise, someone might say, well, look, uh, God can't really be thanked or praised for picking the uh, one of these many unsurpassable worlds instead of a surpassable world, because God couldn't do that, so there's no thanking or praising God there. And then there isn't any meaningful sense in which you thank or praise God for picking one uh, identically valued item instead of another identically valued item, right? So these kind of objections, I think, are going to recur, right? You, you don't have as serious a modal collapse as you do on the alternate alternative, of course, but you still have a kind of modal collapse, right? I mean, look, it seems pretty plausible most of the time to most of us that things could have been worse. Fill that out however you like. But on this view, it's false that things could have been worse. Things could have been different, but they couldn't have been worse <laughs> overall, right? And so a version of this modal collapse problem is gonna come back as well, right? So, so uh, yes, absolutely, there's a third scenario, a ties at the top scenario, but I think there are gonna be some serious objections uh, to theism even on that scenario. It's not, it's not a, it's not a uh, magic wand waving solution that makes all these problems go away. So if you've, well, got, if you've got a little bit of room for, um a thought here. I, I just want to say that I come from the uh, position that there is no such thing as the um, best possible world. I, um, so I <clears throat> I want to examine that uh, a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah, um, well, he's going to so, get into that. <clears throat> okay, so, for, so my position is this, and uh, I'm, I'm sure you probably have this covered on a slide, but uh, well, I'll just, I'll narrow it down to two observations. The first observation is if there is a multiverse, uh, which I happen to uh, buy into, but it, if there are all of these other possible worlds, I don't know why we should call them possible worlds. We can call them worlds. And um, why this one would be the best then is just an arbitrary assignment. Um, 
And so we think it's the best possible world because we're in it uh, or because we think that's the only one that God acted in it. But if, uh, if there's no reason that a Christian would um, have to believe that God only acted in one universe. So the, so uh, from that perspective, even if there was a best possible world, uh, you wouldn't have any way to distinguish which one it is. And you have no uh, idea uh, whether you're in the one that is the best possible world. And, uh, you know, part of this problem is because you say, well, the one that we're in with, with the reality, that's the, that's the world actual, but for every world in a multiverse, <laughs> that's the world actual. Um, and so I don't, uh, from that, from that perspective, I don't see where we would uh, ever have the, uh, uh, the right to privilege one over the other. And that leads to my second point, which is the idea of calling a world, the best possible world isn't um, is a completely ad hoc assignment. And so it's the best possible world uh, based on what so you can say, well, this is the best possible world because that's the one that God wanted. And I think that's the best argument that a Christian could make. Uh, don't make the argument because it's the one that the most souls are saved in because you don't actually know whether that's the one that God wants or not. Uh, it, but if you say, well, it's numerical salvation, uh, then we can imagine a way where we have more numerical salvation. Uh, I think that we could also make uh, religious claims that the best possible world isn't the one necessarily with the most numerical salvation. Um, but it's it's all a matter of uh, ad hoc reasoning. You know, for me, the best possible world would be the one that could make the best pizza, and that would be a world without olives. Because I think a world with olives uh, is going to, by necessity, uh, poison the minds of pizza makers. Uh, and therefore, a world without olives, but that has pepperoni, sausage, uh, onion, and green peppers, is going to be a far superior world. Well, why is that a better possible world? Because it's ad hoc uh, out, of, out of my nether regions. Uh, and so you're going to have to make a case, if you're making a case for best possible world, what your basis on declaring that a best possible world is. And I would, uh, I would argue that there is no, no one with a privileged position to declare what the best possible world, what that criteria would even be. Yeah, great. There's a lot I could react to in that. I'll try to be brief. There's an awful lot in what you said that I completely agree with. I'm certainly tempted by multiverse stories and we'll, we'll probably get it into that a little bit later on. But I just want to stress, uh, given what you were saying at the end, that it's no part of these three objections that are up here on the slide. There's no requirement that anyone running this argument on either side needs to be able to describe what the best possible world is like, nor is there any requirement that they be able to identify whether or not they're in it, right? Purely in the abstract, if you agree there is a best possible world without having any fights about what that world would look like, you can still have this debate. Right? Someone on one side can say, yep, if there's a best possible world, God's going to make it. And the critic can say, ah, yes, but then God wouldn't be free. And it wouldn't make any sense to thank and praise God. And wait a minute, those other possibilities aren't genuine, and so mode will collapse and suit. You can have that whole debate without hashing out what would be the features of the best of all possible worlds. Now, you could have that debate. What are the features of the best possible worlds? Does it have to do with olives? Does it have to do with sunsets? Does it have to do with free creatures uh, actualizing their Maslowian hierarchy of needs or whatever? You can have that debate, absolutely, but I'm just saying it's not required for the discussion about these three objections. 
a little more is required for this one, right? If you get into this question of, hey, wait a minute, is this world that we see around us the best of all possible worlds? Well, someone says a world you know, that includes coronavirus and terrorism would not be the best of all possible worlds. Okay, they've staked their claim. You can have a debate. Would there be things like that in the best of all possible worlds? But bracketing that one, you don't have to get into the weeds on that to have this particular discussion here, which I think is an interesting feature of it. Um, so yeah, I grant your point, it might be very difficult for the inhabitant of any world to tell whether or not this world is the best, right? And maybe it isn't even meaningful to talk about uh, objective uh, overall status of the world, right? Um, th these are the, the framing assumptions of this debate and maybe they're misguided, right? So fair points there. I wonder, Del, can I ask one more question? Yeah, sure. Okay, so it seems to me that the best possible worlds scenario uh, need not include a God. So if we can invite ourselves to think of, uh, of a multiverse where, uh, you know, sort of think of the, uh, the TV show sliders, right? So uh, we have all of these worlds and where any important decision is made, uh, all those, all the range of decisions at that point branch and make some other possible world, right? And, uh, and so it's not very hard for me to imagine uh, a multiverse that doesn't require a God. All it requires is, uh, is nature taking the various courses that nature can take to end up with some natural uh, world within the multiverse that turns out, uh, you know, where people live forever without a need for salvation, just as, for instance, if, if you think that's the most important characteristic of Christianity, right, that, that uh, people get to live forever in happiness. So it doesn't seem to me to be required that, uh, that the best possible world's sort of case requires a God to make it. Yeah, good. So this is really a, a whole separate debate um, uh, that I've done some work on. I'm very interested in, right? So this is the debate of you know, putting it very loosely: Are things better with or without God? Right? Are things are, are things better if there is a God, or are things worse if there is a God? And what are some reasons? So uh, just to flesh out what you're saying, absolutely. Some people think that um, things would be better if there were no God, right? For example. If there's a God and God is omniscient, then God knows the innermost thoughts uh, of all of us, right? And some people would say, well, wait a minute, uh, that compromises our privacy. And that's a clear respect in which uh, things are worse if God exists. If there's no God, right, then we can have some kind of privacy, at least some of the time. If there's a God, we can't have any privacy any of the time in any meaningful sense. But that's just one example, right? So on this debate, there have been all kinds of considerations uh, um, for thinking that um, things are worse if there is a God. That, that view is called anti-theism, by the way, which is not the claim that theism is false, but it's the claim that theism would or does make things worse. The other uh, view is pro-theism. This is the view not that there is a God, but that things would be better if there were a God. And there's all sorts of considerations offered on that side as well. So yeah, I've done a, a separate interview for a different uh, a YouTube channel on that, and I'm happy to steer uh, listeners to that or what I've written on it. But yes, super interesting debate. So I take your point. Um, one could certainly resist the claim that things are better if there is a God in all respects for all people, et cetera, et cetera. Awesome. All right, cool. So Dale, I'm sorry. I was not trying to drag us off over there. I think that was actually out of bounds um, oh, for no. the show. So I'm going to leave it because I didn't realize we were going to end up there when I asked the question. So my apologies. No, you didn't know. Yeah, and, and like for the audience, I, I definitely recommend check out the 
uh, the analytic Christian with Jordan and class talking about that. They go over five reasons on anti-theism, five reasons on pro-theism. It's a great, great interview. So yeah, class, I, I want to turn it back to you. I want to make sure that you have enough time to finish off your presentation. You, you wanted to get into the second part of it there. So yeah. Yeah, great. So the theme here, right, is um, what are some problems for theism if there's no best of all possible worlds? So um, that's the other scenario that we wanted to talk about. So there's no best of all possible worlds at all. Instead, there's an infinite hierarchy of increasingly better worlds. This is absolutely the mainstream view in contemporary analytic philosophy religion circles. It's practically dogma that, that it's unintelligible to talk about a best of all possible worlds. It's by far away the more popular view that there's no best of all possible worlds, that things just get better and better and better. But then there's this very interesting argument for atheism that arises on this view. And here's what's interesting about it. It's an a priori argument for atheism. So it's purely based on introspection and reason alone. It's not based on some feature of the world, okay? So it's not the sort of argument that says, here's some feature of the world that shouldn't be if God exists, therefore there's no God. It's not like that. It's a purely a priori argument that seeks to show that theism is not just false, but impossible if there's no best of all possible worlds. Okay, so it's an extraordinarily ambitious argument, completely a priori, for not just the claim that theism is false, but for the claim that theism is necessarily false, i.e. impossible. So here it goes. The most famous proponent of this argument is a, a great uh, philosopher named uh, William L. Rowe, who wrote, who wrote uh, uh, about this 10, 15 years ago. But here goes the argument. The argument, this isn't sort of a premises to conclusion type of argument. This is an argument as I'm setting it up here that says, look, here's a package of claims and they can't all be true. Here's the package of claims. For every world that's within God's power to create or to actualize, there's a better world that God could have made instead. Next claim. If it's possible for the product of God's action to have been better, then, all else equal, it's possible for the action to have been better. So, quick example. So the product of my action, let's go back to, you know, picking birthday presents or whatever. Look, I, you know, I was a terrible dad. I could have picked a better present for my son than the one that I did. So it's possible for me to have chosen a better present. From that, it follows, according to P1, that it's possible that I have acted better. That's a reason for thinking I'm an imperfect father if I choose a, 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 a product that could have been bettered. Okay, so this is the connection between the goodness of the product and the goodness of the action. The better the product, the better the action in picking it. Next step, seeks to draw a connection between the goodness of the action and the goodness of the agent. Here it is. If it's possible for an action to have been better, then it's possible for that being to have been better. Slightly less technically, if God could have done better, God could have been better, right? If God could have done a better action, then God could have been better. But wait a minute, theism is the claim, or at least here's a really modest version of it, there possibly exists a being who is essentially unsurpassable in power, knowledge, goodness, and rationality. So the argument says you cannot coherently assert all of these four things at the same time. So let's grant NBW. Let's grant that one, right? That's the scenario we're working with. Suppose 
following the uh, widespread uh, uh, opinion of our peers in philosophy right now, that there's no best of all possible worlds. Okay. Which one are you going to kick out of the box? Which one are you going to kick out of this set? Because they cannot all be true as a matter of logic. Well, Rowe said, look, P1 and P2 are awfully plausible. The better the product, the better the action. The better the action, the better the being. So the one you should kick out is G. That's the, that's the weak, uh, what was that show called? The weakest link? That's the weakest link in the series. The, you should assert the other claims and you should get rid of G. So that's why it's a claim, not merely for the falsity of the claim that God exists, but for the, in, the claim that God is impossible. Okay. So why is it possible? Well, just a little bit more on P1 and P2. Remember, we're in the scenario of no best world, right? God could always have picked a better world. So therefore, God could have done a better action. That's P1. All right, here comes P2. Well, if God could have done a better action in picking a world, then God could have been better. But of course, according to traditional theism, God could not possibly have been better. God is already supposed to be unsurpassable. Okay, so that's a really interesting argument for atheism. I've defended it in print. I've defended it indirectly anyway by criticizing critics of it. Um, so very briefly, if I have time, I'll run through a couple of replies that have been uh, given to this, right? So um, you could try to run the argument uh, in reverse, so to speak. You could say, fine, there's no best of all possible worlds, but guess what? I'm going to kick out P1 or P2. Why? Simply because I think it's overwhelmingly plausible that God is possible, right? In other words, G is more forceful, more luminous, more justified, more reasonable, and granting NBW, well, then we're going to kick out one or both members of this conjunction, P1 and P2, right? A more radical move is to say, okay, fine, I give up the idea that God is essentially unsurpassable. So I'm going to say I'm a theist, I believe that God exists, but it's no part of my theism that God is unsurpassable. The God I believe in could have been better. That's a bit like in the hiddenness case where the theist might give up the idea that God is loving. You might say, look, I believe in God, I just don't believe that God is loving, so this argument, hiddenness argument, doesn't get off the ground for me. Over here you might say, sure, fine, I believe in God, but I don't believe that God is essentially unsurpassable. So it doesn't bother me at all that the God I believe in could have done better or could have been better. Pretty radical move, I think, for lots of theists, right? Then, of course, you could just come up with arguments against P2. I'm not going to get into that today. Or you could come up with arguments against P1. That's by far the more popular response. So this is to say that it's false that every time the product is better, that the action must be better. That's what you're saying when you're rejecting P1, right? So, for example, there's a well-known article that says, look, here's what God's going to do. God's going to divide the worlds into those that are sort of roughly acceptable and those that aren't. And God can just pick any one of the acceptable ones randomly or arbitrarily. And there's no problem there. God isn't somehow surpassable. Sure, God could have picked a better world if the randomizing, you know, device had spat out a higher number or whatever. But that doesn't mean that God would have done a better action. So it's trying to break the link between the goodness of the product and the goodness of the action. Um, there's a technical term here from decision theory and it started in economics. Satisficing is a portmanteau made up of um, satisfy and sufficient. The idea here is that it can be rational to do less than the best, right? So the underlying idea here is that it can be perfectly okay, morally okay, rationally okay, for God to do less than the best or to do at least less than God could have done. 
So that's a satisficing based response, right? You don't always have to pick the best house when you're house shopping in order to be rational. You can pick a house that's good enough, good enough for you and your family. You buy the house, it's fine. You haven't, um, sure you could have bought a better house, but that doesn't mean you necessarily would have done a better action in buying a better house. Okay, so that's the idea of satisficing. I'm a critic of that move, but anyway, there it is. Um, or of course, finally, you could say, you know what? It's a mistake to think that there's no best of all possible worlds. In fact, there is a best of all possible worlds, or as Dale suggested, maybe there's seven of them or 12 of them or infinitely many of them. But then in a way you go from the frying pan to the fire because there are other uh, objections to theism that we've already discussed. So that's a bit of an overview of some of the key objections to this argument. Excellent, thank you class. Um, all right, perfect. So, so yeah, we're right at three o'clock. So I know I promised, um, you know, one to two hours, one and a half to two hours kind of thing. Uh, and I want to respect your time. Do, do you maybe have like an extra 15 minutes? If I Oh, sure. Yeah. No, if, if people want to keep going, I'm happy to keep going. This is such an interesting argument. I'd hate to cut it off there. Oh, awesome. All right, cool. Yeah. So in that case, I'll, I'll let it go and let you guys have the, have the floor. Um, okay. I'll be damned if I let uh, Andrew beat me to the mute button this time. Um, so <laughs> that said, you'll be damned regardless uh, <laughs> of the mute button, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> that that said, my comment here isn't um, uh, that earth shattering. I I I think <clears throat> I agree with um, most of what you said there, and I just I find I'm working on I'm working on another argument about uh, the possibility of a perfect being and this thought of the best possible world kind of coincides with my thoughts about whether a an all perfect being is even a plausible idea or and for that matter an all evil being and so um uh, dale and i had some discussions about that and so i i would just comment that this this idea of a best possible world kind of coincides with that i would ask um just so you, you know, David, um, uh, class is actually my supervisor for the evil god challenge we were discussing the evil okay god. yeah i think i think there's a lot of overlap there so i wanted to ask you klaus do you believe that it is philosophically sensible to suggest a perfect world so we're talking about the best possible world but the best possible world might be the you know the best of three bad choices you know that doesn't make that doesn't mean it's a good world just because it's the best of the of the possible worlds we've got and so my my question here for you is do you think it's philosophically feasible to say uh we don't just have the best of the the possible worlds that we've got but we've got a perfect world and if you don't believe that would it be consistent to then say, well, but there could be a perfect being? Okay, so right, that's not exactly what this argument. So I take your point, first of all, uh, one might say the best possible world is still pretty mediocre because that's just the way uh, possibility space is. You've got some really bad worlds and some mediocre ones and the best of them is still pretty mediocre. So fair point is a matter of logic. I, I'm the um, best possible guy that uh, Dale could have gotten for a second seat. That, that does not mean that, <laughs> that, does not mean that I, I'm a, a good choice. So. Yeah, right. So then I think you asked two questions. The first is, do I think that a perfect world is coherent? And I mean, I think I'm officially agnostic on there. I'm, I'm, I'm awfully tempted by the 
thought that there's no best of all possible worlds. On the other hand, the arguments for it tend to be pretty slender. I want to recommend that what I think is a bit of an overlooked paper by Anders Kral, K-R-A-A-L, from 2013. And he runs through, I can send you the reference later, he runs through a number of arguments for the claim that there's no best of all possible worlds, and I think does a really nice job of finding them wanting. Um, a lot of the arguments are pretty quick appeals to intuition. Oh, you can always have another happy person. Therefore, it's always better to have, therefore, there's always a better possible world, right? So I'm a little bit uh, agnostic uh, on, on that question. Um, but then I think the last question you asked is, if, if there isn't a perfect world, could there be a perfect being, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure if you have some bridging principles or something in mind uh, but between, uh, between that, right? I mean, uh, you might say, look, maybe, maybe this is the best that God could do. So God's a perfect being, but, but God is constrained for various reasons. And so the best world that God can create is still pretty mediocre by some standards, right? Um, I don't see any, any obvious incoherence there yet. Uh, so, yeah. But just to sort of zooming out just a little bit, right? So there's a number of arguments for the impossibility of God. Some of them say, look, this particular attribute of God conflicts with this other attribute of God. And, you know, uh, uh, so there, that's the conflict, right? So, so there, therefore God is impossible. This argument, the problem of no best world is not exactly like that. It's saying that there's a, a logical problem between the idea of God on the one hand and the idea of there being no best possible world on the other hand. So it's not an internal contradiction in God that's being alleged. It's a contradiction being alleged between God on the one hand and the scenario of no best possible world on the other. So yeah, just to set a bit of context there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and um, uh, sign off because I, I have to run and uh, do a task here. If I, if I finish with that task and you guys are still talking, I'll sign back on. But uh, I just want to say um, thanks for having me. It's been a good discussion and I um, uh, hope that uh, we get a chance to talk again sometime. Thanks very much. And is that, is that Andrew just signing off just so I know who this is? This is, this is David. Oh, this David. Is, okay. this, this, you, is, this, is, this is a smart one. I don't, have, uh, I don't have your names in front of me anymore, so I'm sure who was. Well, nice chatting with you. Okay. All that. Thanks, David. He's also delusional, but thanks, David. <laughs> thanks, David, for, for coming on as a co-host and helping me out. All right, take care. All right, Andrew, so, so yeah, over to you to, to close it off with discussion on class on this issue here. Okay, so I have, I have two problems uh, with, with NBW. Uh, one is that I just like it way too much. Mm. I, I, I philosophically object to arguments that I like that much uh, because it probably means that, uh, that I'm blind to a weakness, right? But, mm -hmm. but I, I think that I'm a little concerned that there can be some equivocation on what we mean by best. Um, so I'm sort of arguing against, uh, against NBW here. So uh, it's possible that in a universe where every possible thing we encountered was subjective, there might not be a best possible world. And again, this is an argument I really like, right? But in a universe where there are objective outcomes, it seems that even if we don't like the outcome, there must have been a best outcome uh, among the possible objective options. Now, it still might be mediocre, right? It, it might not be best in any sense where, um, uh, you know, 
uh, chocolate happens to be a nutritious food. So, so we all get to have as much as we want. Um, but it seems that there must still be a best in there somewhere if there are objective principles uh, that apply anywhere, even if those principles are things we agree on. So, so I'd say that, that we live in a subjective universe, uh, but once we agree on rules of the game, we can make, uh, we can make objective decisions about uh, what is, what is uh, uh, better or worse in terms of, of that agreement. Well, there must be some best outcome then. And uh, so, so I'm concerned that the best possible world uh, throws away any sort of objectivity in regard to outcome. And I'm wondering what you think. Yeah, I'm not sure it follows this. So, well, yeah, so we'll stipulate that worlds uh, have objective, um, absolute and relative value. It sounds like you're saying, well, the minute we stipulate that, there has to be a best one, but I'm not sure that follows, right? I mean, maybe there's one, good, let's go with your chocolate example. There's one, let's just say, there's one good making feature of worlds, and it's the amount of enjoyment of um, uh, people in consuming chocolate, people like us. Okay, the amount of enjoyment, right? That's, let's say, that's the objective single criterion by which we rank worlds. So worlds without any chocolate at all are pretty bad, and worlds with lots of chocolate but no one to enjoy it are pretty bad. But once you start adding people and chocolate and people with the right kind of sense organs and so forth to enjoy it, then the worlds start to get better. And it sounds as though you're saying, well, the minute you say that, then there has to be a top, an upper bound. And I'd want to put <clears throat> There, right? I mean, why would that follow, right? What maybe there could be, um, you know, an ever increasing number of people. You can spread them out really far across multiple worlds or, or universes, let's say, or, or parts of the universe, right? Um, and they're all enjoying chocolate busily, right? And maybe not even the number of people is the, maybe it's not the case that the number of people is the only thing you can play with, but maybe the amount of enjoyment, right? Maybe there are, you know how uh, wine lovers, unophiles, right? They have much more, allegedly, much more rarefied taste buds than we do, right? So maybe there are chocolateophiles who have much more rarefied taste buds than they, we do. So there's infinitely many of those, but also they get finer and finer in their appreciation of chocolate, ever more ability to discriminate in their palates between better and better forms of chocolate. So when I start fleshing out the story like that, it's not so clear to me anymore that there would be a best of all possible worlds. If we're using simply enjoyment, you know, hedonic enjoyment of chocolate as our one uh, objective criterion. So I'm perfectly happy to use uh, hedonistic enjoyment of chocolate as best possible world. But so maybe you're right. Uh, maybe you're right that I am just smuggling in best uh, under the guise of objectivity. That, that's very possibly true. Um, but it, it doesn't necessarily seem obvious to me if we're, if we're appealing to the objective um, that there is an above, above objective. Um, so I wonder if we're not just being a little a priori about uh, what objective is. So see, one of the, one of the possibilities is you're saying, right, but your objective isn't actually objective. So it sounds like, it sounds like, uh, relativism is being smuggled in, in place of objectivity. 
Oh, because you're, you're worried, I guess, because the example of taste sounds relativistic, right? Like one person likes chocolate and the other person likes ice cream or whatever, right? So I'd right. say that's, a, that's, that's, it's true that, that taste is, is uh, really well understood to be relative, right? Beauty's in the eye of the beholder and all that. That makes sense to me. Um, but that's not, a, that's not doing any work in the analogy. We just stipulated, or in the scenario, we simply stipulated that enjoyment of chocolate is the one criteria. And you can pick a different criteria, and you can pick, you know, uh, was it you or uh, David who said the number of souls who are saved, right? Okay, well, there's no upper bound on the number of souls who could be saved, right? So it could ever after populate universes after universe with more souls and save them or whatever, right? So the point is, right, for these criteria, the chocolate one's obviously a little bit silly, but for lots of these criteria, and it seems like it's difficult to imagine how they could be maximally instantiated. Right, that's the mm. way that, that goes that, that tells towards the no best world. I see, I see. I oh boy, I'm tempted, I, I'm so tempted to push this because uh, I'm I am trying to figure out which one of us is smuggling in the term here. Yeah, um, right, right, right. Well, read, and, and, you know, for the perspective that you might be looking for, read Andrew Carl's uh, article because he'll, you know, the kinds of considerations that I'm floating are ones that he actually objects to, I think, quite nicely in that paper. So I'll, I'll recommend it to you. And it's nice he's going against the, the dogma of, of uh, oh, quite obviously, there's no best of all possible worlds. There's a lot of hand waving right on both sides of this issue, I think. Yeah, right. And, and I'll just say, I'm probably wrong. Where, where, so, so, so there we are. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say, uh, class, yeah, if you want, like, after, send me an email of, like, some of the various sources, and I'll be happy to post them up on my blog so people can click on these articles and stuff like that. And, Fantastic. Yeah. Happy to, happy to do it, for sure. All right. Um, I guess one one last question from from me, if you don't mind, um, or Andrew, do you do you still have more to go? Or? No, because I think both sides were well were well represented. I, I asked the question that I wanted to ask. I think uh, I think Klaus is probably right that uh, that I was smuggling in a term and didn't and didn't realize it. I'm I'm still concerned that um, that we're not actually using objective. Uh, quite in the sense it's usually meant, but but I think I, I think the listeners will will suss it out and draw their own conclusion. And and like I said, uh, I'm probably wrong. So so there we are. Awesome. All right, cool. Uh, so so yeah, my my last question is on this issue that you brought up uh, with David. So because he's borrowing this from me, this is my idea about well, what's the parameter that would define potentially define um, a created world as being you know, in the best possible world. And okay, in a Christian sense, it's as many people achieving free willed creatures achieving their ultimate purpose in creation, which is salvation from a, a Christian perspective. Um, so that's the parameter. And, and you kind of said, yeah, but you can imagine God could create one with a world with 200 billion souls and they're all saved or something. And I'm not sure that, that that's, there's no feasible world where that is necessarily the case, um, or, or I wouldn't know how we would prove that because salvation entails a free will decision. That means it's not under God's direct power or, or determination or control. Uh, so that means there's limits. Like God has to work within our, our free will choices and that sort of thing to make the best compossible world. So do you have anything to say about that? Like, is it really that easy to defeat this notion of, of thinking, well, the world where the most free-willed creatures achieve their ultimate purpose in creation, that defines the best possible world. 
I see. So, um, yeah, right. So for listeners here, right, feasible is a bit of a term of art here, right? So some philosophers want to distinguish possible worlds from feasible worlds. So feasible worlds are ones that are not only possible, but also within God's power to create. So Dale's suggesting that there might be worlds that are possible, but not within God's power to create. I think, though, that the deep issue here is what are the requirements for salvation? So it sounds like you're saying in, in your scenario that um, salvation is in significant measure up to creatures. They need to do something. They need to, I don't know, think something or do something or sign off on something in order to be saved. And you're saying that given a certain conception of free will, there's no guarantee that would be the case. Um, but one way to get the intuition up and running again is to just set all that aside and say that um, salvation doesn't require anything on the part of people. Salvation is a free gift of God. This uh, tradition is certainly very strong in the history of Christianity as well. And it's not in any way up to uh, people's choices or actions or beliefs, whether or not they're saved. And uh, then you just populate a world with as many people as you want, and you let God be in charge of uh, saving them, and uh, the intuition is up and, up and running again, I think. I was hoping Calvinism wouldn't be brought up, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. Um, so yeah, I think that that covers it um, in terms of the three topics and all the questions that we wanted to ask. Um, is there, class? just as you're the main guest here, is there anything that you feel we haven't mentioned that you really feel is important to get out there for the audience on these issues? No, listen, there's lots more to be said about all these topics, but listen, what, what I mostly want to say is thank you so much. What a great opportunity to talk about these topics that I, uh, that I care about deeply and that uh, I find really stimulating, and I hope listeners uh, do too. Awesome. Yeah, no, I know for sure they will. I, I was really happy to have you on, and, and you can tell from, from David's and... Uh, Andrew's reaction that you, you know, you were very informative and, and it was fun. It, you know, we had a, a great uh, talk here about these things and trust me, I've been trying for three years to get these guys interested in possible worlds. And <laughs> I <laughs> hope they are now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been practically <laughs> impossible to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very well. All right. Awesome. So, so yeah, with that, I'll, I'll wrap it up. Uh, I want to, I made it through all the show and thank you everybody for, Oh, uh, David's rejoined us. So we're just wrapping up. So, so yeah, thank you everyone for, for joining in. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Um, I'll put up links for, for everybody on some of the topics and articles so you guys can read and do your own research. I really love, love when you guys do that. Um, I think the next show we have coming up is I'm going to be on skeptics and seekers debating Ball the atheist on the topic of free will. He's a compatibilist. I'm libertarian free wills. And, uh, yeah, we're going to be going back and forth on that issue. So that's what to, to look out for next time. Um, but yeah, have a great week, everybody. Thanks so much. Bye for now. All right.